ages four through second grade. Uh, parents, if you're here with your kids for the first time, would you escort them uh, to the classroom and then you can uh, join us shortly thereafterwards. So Ben is out today and he asked me to preach again for him. Uh, I, this is my third time preaching at Redeemer. Uh, the previous two times were the Sunday after Christmas, which is commonly referred to as Letdown Sunday. Um, uh, it, it's a pretty hard time to, to preach at any church, whether it's your own church or the church that you're, you're new at, like, like we are here. Um, but man, it's hard to follow um, the Sunday after you elect a new pastor. So I don't know if his grandmother is having a birthday this weekend or not. I'm not sure. <clears throat> We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 this morning. So if you'd open up there uh, in your Bibles or you can follow along in your bulletin. We're kind of dropping in, so just to provide some context, uh, the church is young, uh, Jesus has ascended into heaven, uh, and the disciples are really for the first time facing uh, persecution in the church. Peter and John have been sent out by Jesus, and now they're in, uh, at the temple, and they're preaching the good news of the gospel, uh, they're proclaiming um, the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, uh, and what that means for people like us. Uh, and they're doing healing. Uh, they've just healed a man in a previous chapter who has been lame for 40 years since birth. And so that, that's where we are here in Acts chapter 4. Uh, I love Godfather movies. Um, I usually watch them all the way through a couple times a year. Usually they're on some uh, television channel. Uh, and uh, I was watching the movies recently. And I, as, as many times as I've seen the films, there's something I picked, on for the, picked up for the very first time. Uh, this last time, and that was that Vito Corleone and Michael Corleone both make this similar statement where they say that all I've ever wanted to do is to protect my family from the horrors of this world. And you realize that's just not true because that's not the desire that's created this world. They have been involved in this underbelly of society, right, involved in, in crime and racketeering and, and murder for hire uh, it, that's not the desire uh, to protect family that, that's created this world. It's not even a desire for increasing wealth and status. It's simply a desire for more power, more control, more autonomy. And that's why The Godfather is this perfect picture of how we tend to think of life. We tend to think of life as a zero-sum game, where if you're not winning, you're losing, right? Right? We think that the more power you have, the more control you feel, and therefore the more distance you can create between yourself and feelings of insecurity and, and weakness. And you need to have a sense of power because it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, right? It's survival of the fittest. And you have to have some sense of power if you're going to get anywhere in this world and in your life or to be anybody. Limits are limiting. You don't like limits. The rule of law can be limiting. Um, having to answer to anyone else in any context is limiting. Being vulnerable in relationships is limiting. If you're someone who, who wants power, you probably shouldn't have it. If you love having power, it's probably all for the wrong reasons. And if you want nothing more than to hold on to power, it, it, you either don't realize that what you have is limited and temporary, or you do realize that. You just want to hang on to whatever you can for as long as you can because you have a fear of losing it. 
if life is a zero-sum game, then you find yourself in direct opposition to everyone else around you. Everyone is a threat. But the Bible goes one step further, and it says that if you pursue these idols of power in your life, you find yourself in opposition to God. And you think that his authority and his design for your life is limiting and it is a threat to your sense of power and control. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about idols of power. That when when established power structures are threatened, it can lead to bitterness and conflict and oppression. But as we see in our text, when Jesus challenges that same uh, established power structure that we create in, in this life, when he does that in his love, it can be the birthplace of healing and redemption. So we're going to talk about facing threats to power and then facing the power of Jesus. Uh, let me read the text for us and then I'll pray. This is Acts chapter 4 starting at verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, (coughs) they had nothing to say in opposition But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have invited us into your presence uh, this morning uh, in the name of Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. Amen. (coughs) 
it um, doesn't take much to have your sense of power threatened, right? Uh, Peter and John here in this text as disciples, they aren't giants. They aren't great warriors. They're not part of the Avengers, right? Um, as you see in verse 13, the, these rulers call them just common men, uneducated men. They're not scholarly. They're a couple of fishermen from a small town who are uh, doing what? They're teaching the gospel. They're proclaiming the resurrection in the name of Jesus. They're healing people like this man who's been lame since birth. But now they're being persecuted by these uh, ruling figures, these, these authorities uh, of, of their day. What's the big deal? What are they doing that's so wrong? Well, it is a big deal if you think of it contextually. Everything about the culture that they live in is built upon and centered around temple worship. What if people start actually believing in this Jesus? What if they start believing that he is their great high priest? Then what happens? The priestly system crumbles. What happens if people start believing that this Jesus shed his blood as a once-for-all sacrifice for their sins? What happens to the sacrificial system? It crumbles, right? But there's this group called the Sadducees that have the farthest to fall. They are the elite. They are the wealthy. They're the ruling class. And as we see in verse 17, they say, we don't want people to get ideas in their heads, right? Because they know what happens when people start to, uh, to, to think something new, right? That, that the elite get challenged. Powers can be overthrown. But this group of Sadducees are also anti-supernaturalists. They don't believe in miracles. They especially don't believe in the resurrection. So what if this man who was lame since birth was actually healed by the power of Jesus? What if this Jesus actually was raised from the dead after three days? What happens? This group loses credibility and therefore they lose power. And that's when the persecution comes. Because the fear of powerlessness is always the source of oppression. That is true at any point in history. That's true in biblical times. We know that to be true in the history of our country, right? There's some low-hanging fruit with slavery and Jim Crow and the civil rights movement. But when you feel powerless, your first reaction is to do what? It's to deny it, right? I don't want to believe that about myself, right? And so you're inclined to control others, to dominate them, to persecute them, to oppress them, to live in the state of denial because life is a zero-sum game. And if you're not winning, you're losing. But when you face threats to power, even when you're maybe in a season that, of suffering that's out of your control, you can start to realize that you're not just the parts of yourself that you put on display that you want others to see and others to believe about you. And that can cause uh, and can fuel bitterness and conflict because we tend to build our lives out of the stories that we tell ourselves uh, in our heads. Power idolatry is all around us. You actually don't have to be in a position of leadership and authority to wrestle with the idolatry of power in your own life. It shows up in our pride, right? It shows up when you demand respect in unhealthy ways where people have to walk on eggshells around you, uh, when you feel hurt when someone doesn't listen to you, um, 
and you think that you have all the right answers that you know better. Power idolatry shows up in abusive relationships. Um, it's all about power. If you've been the victim of abuse, um, of any kind of abuse in the past, you know that to be true. But maybe you're the abuser. Maybe you're the violent spouse who utters violent words. Maybe you're the parent whose children fears you. Maybe you're an emotional manipulator. It's power idolatry. It also shows up in how we crave approval and, and seek status um, at, at any cost where we will do um, anything to get ahead. We will step on you and we will step over you to get to where we're going. Power idolatry shows up in how you manage your time, that you can actually control other people when everyone else is at the mercy of your schedule. Power idolatry shows up in, in living uh, these manufactured, manicured lives where we don't think it's okay to not be okay, where we rarely show signs of struggle. And we control the narrative of the relationships that we're in because we keep people at a distance. We don't want people to really get to know us. Power idolatry can even show up as you want just to live a comfortable life. You don't want to be asked to do much, right? You don't want to get your hands dirty. But it's interesting that in the book of Acts, if already we're only four chapters in, and there's a couple different moments where you see these intentional gospel-centered communities start to form, where people are actually for one another. They start to serve one another. They get their hands dirty. They share their lives. They share all their stuff, all their possessions, and it's this intentional community that starts to rub up against idols of power. It's intentional community that threatens autonomy. I was watching, not too long ago, a documentary on Mount Everest and, and climbing Mount Everest. And there was a moment of brevity where the narrator said the number one reason that people die trying to climb Mount Everest is because people try to climb Mount Everest. He said people, you know, don't die because they uh, have an experience in, in alpine uh, climbing. He, he said they don't die because they don't have enough resources. He said the fittest people, the greatest alpinists in the world, the greatest climbers with the best gear, the most expensive gear, go up the mountain and they die because they enter into what they call the death zone. It's when you climb past a certain altitude where there's so little oxygen and it's so cold that no human being is meant to survive for any length of time. But you've got people that will pay big money, like you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and take three months to try to get to the summit. They'll walk this knife edge of a ridge just to get to the top. This last summer, you, you probably remember seeing it on the news. There were, there were images that came from Mount Everest uh, where people were trying to get to the summit, and the, 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 uh, the trail was just packed with people. It was so crowded, and people died because they had nowhere to go. That's what uh, the, the pursuit of, of power looks like. The struggle for power is a climb into the death zone. We weren't meant to, to live autonomous lives. But we can tend to... to Buy into this myth that more power gives me more autonomy, which gives me more freedom, but it's not freedom. 
there's a, a scene, I think it was the very first Avengers movie, where Loki, um, who was evil at the time, um, I guess he's still sort of evil, um, but uh, he was evil at the time, and he was trying to, uh, to oppress this people group, I think it was a group of Germans, and he said, bow down to me, you know, worship me, I am your God, and they say, you know, we're going to bow down to no one, we just want to, to, to live our own lives, how we see fit, we just want freedom, and he laughs at them, and he says, oh, the bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power. I think he's right. Because you will fall victim in this pursuit of, of power, and you're going to victimize others along the way. We've seen this all of our lives, because your ego will win out unless it meets its match in the power of Jesus. So let's talk about facing the power of Jesus. When human beings pursue power and control and autonomy, it communicates what? It communicates, this is my kingdom. This is my kingdom. But here's what Acts 4 is highlighting for us. Jesus does not share his power with anyone. He is king alone. His power cannot be threatened. But here's what it also shows us, that this Jesus, who is all-powerful, intervenes and cares for us when he sees other powers that threaten to do us harm and to impede our flourishing. Whether that threat comes from paralysis to a 40-year-old man, or whether that comes from our own sin, Jesus intervenes. The power of Jesus turns right side up to that which is upside down about our world. That's why Jesus came. If you look at verses 5 through 12, this is what Peter and John are talking about. They're talking about the power of Jesus on display, how there is redemption and no one else, or salvation and no one else but Jesus through his power. People are coming to faith in droves, thousands and thousands of people, simply out of the power of Jesus working in their lives. There's a man who has never been able to walk, and now he's not just standing before them, he's dancing and skipping around. That's only through the power of Jesus. I know that the, um, the British royals have been in the news uh, this week and weekend. Um, Harry and Meghan, uh, but a few years ago, Prince William was in the news all the time because he was getting married and started having kids, and he's going to be king one day. Well, there was an article, article that came out in one of the, the local uh, London newspapers where um, a bunch of local citizens were asked, what kind of king do you think Prince William is going to be when he finally takes the throne? And there was a consensus answer where they said, I, I don't know, I just hope that he's a good one. I just hope he's a good king. You want a good king, right? Good kings are good to have. They protect people, right, from threats. Uh, they aid prosperity, right? Uh, they, they hopefully don't abuse their authority that they have. But here's the reality. The English monarch is just a figurehead. He doesn't have real power. That lies in, in a, the prime minister in, in parliament. The point is it doesn't matter if you're a good king if you're not really sovereign but here is what we see in, in Acts 4, is that Jesus is sovereign, and he is good. And he's good. The disciples are teaching about this Jesus who was raised from the dead, and that means that death does not have the last word over him or anyone whom he loves. 
Jesus said, I will be raised in three days after I die. And what happened? He did it. He did it. Has this group of people ever seen anybody come back from the dead? Yes. How? The power of Jesus. It's the power of Jesus. And guess what? The disciples are being persecuted for, for preaching this, teaching this, for proclaiming this good news. Thousands of people are coming to faith. Hearts are being changed. Lives are being transformed. There's real redemption that's happening. People that you thought they are too far gone, they are hopeless, they are a lost cause, they're coming to faith in Jesus, and the disciples are being persecuted for it. There is real healing of seismic proportions that is going on here in our passage. A lame man who has never been able to walk is now standing before them. And they're being persecuted for it. What would you do in the face of persecution? What would you say to those authority figures that are trying to oppress you? I don't know what I would do. Um, but here's what Peter does. Peter, in the face of persecution, he quotes a psalm. Like, that's far more spiritually minded, right, than anything that I would do, right? I would have some choice words for them. But he quotes a psalm. He quotes scripture. He, he says that, that, look, the only one that can make this world right, the only one that can turn right side up, which is upside down, the only one that can fix the broken in this world, in, in this world is the one that you killed, that you crucified. He is the stone that you, the builders, the religious elite, have rejected, and now he has become the cornerstone. Now, sidebar, whenever scripture is quoted in another part of scripture, uh, it's calling us not just to think about that little line that was referenced. It's calling us to think about the entire context of that larger passage. So, Peter quotes Psalm 118. What else does Psalm 118 say? It says that despite this world looking like madness, despite this world looking so upside down and broken, despite seeing evil called good and good called evil, which is going on in our text, which goes on this very day, despite all of that, still the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. God has come in the person of Jesus to make this world right in his love. And he challenges established power structures. He challenges the kingdoms that we have made, that we have built in our sin, because his steadfast love endures forever for us. He breaks the power of reigning sin that corrupts this world and our hearts and our bodies because his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 118 says that when you feel oppression from evil bombarding you from the inside and from outside of you, the Lord comes to you as a helper in his steadfast love because he is good and he is sovereign. And in light of that, Peter and John are saying, you have two options. You can either accept this Jesus and submit to him, or you can reject him. Those are the only two options, just like Dylan's saying about, right? It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. But when Jesus challenges our sense of power and his love, we start to see that we're just not the parts of ourselves that we put on display that we want others to see and believe about us. 
How does it make you feel when you realize that you're not the person that you want to be? How does it make you feel? It makes me feel really weak, right? Does it make you feel weak? If Jesus is in full control and I am not in control, man, that makes me feel weak. But do you remember what Jesus told the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Paul's got this thorn in his side. He prays for God to take it away. He feels his weakness. And what does Jesus say? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul responds. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's only the steadfast love of the Lord that can heal our will to power. Even though we feel powerlessness, even though we try to deny that and deny feeling weak, deny how how our lives are really constructed, and we end up in conflict with others and try to control others and oppress them to live in a state of denial, Jesus says there is another way. I like what Tim Keller says. He says that by admitting our sin and need and powerlessness and by casting ourselves on God's mercy, we will finally become secure in his love and therefore empowered in a way that does not lead us to oppress others. The insecurity is gone. The lust for power is cut at the root. So if the pursuit of power, if the pursuit of control and autonomy is not the way it's supposed to be, how can we start to see the world being made right? How can we see the world being made right? How can we see oppression of people groups cease? How can we start to see the dignity of life from conception to death be upheld? How can political corruption be stopped? How can systematic racism be ended? How can Memphis begin to embody a a city where people are really for one another? That they love one another and serve one another and pursue real justice and mercy. How does that happen? Well, it happens the same way that I uh, am made to be a less controlling person, a less angry person, and more forgiving. It happens the same way that this man, who was 40 years old, was able to walk for the very first time. It happens when the power of Jesus transforms you. When he transforms you. When you, when you come to faith in Jesus, uh, he, he brings you from a state of death to life, right? But he's not done shaping you. He's not done transforming you. He wants you to become more like himself, to look more like Jesus. Okay, so what? What does all this mean for us? Because as Christians, we live... Uh, in, uh, in, in an age where we have been changed by the power of Jesus, right? We've come to faith in Jesus, and we live of the hope of the age to come, that one day, someday, where there'll be no more sin and no more uh, crying and no more oppression. But we also live in this present age, this present day, where seemingly everybody and their mom is directly opposed to God and his kingdom. So where do we go from here as Christians? Where do we go? Well, I'm going to give us uh, two challenges that we face now and that we'll always face until Jesus comes back. 
um, hopefully two encouragements for us and then two opportunities. So here are the two challenges. First, a personal challenge. It's the challenge of submitting ourselves to Jesus' authority and, and his care. If you look at verse 19, Peter says that, you know, should we follow your authority? Should we submit to you or should we submit to God and follow him? We're going to follow Jesus because he's good. Right? But, but there's a problem that, that Peter faces and John faces in their day that we face too in our day. Is that everything around us, everything in our culture, it tugs at us and tugs at our heart to go our own way. To follow our own devices and desires. right? To live your truth. Right? Whatever that means. This is why you need people in your lives that, that can be really honest with you. That love you well and that say... Look, you're not going the way that God has designed you to, to live. This is why we need to know each other more intimately in the church. But you need people in your lives that are able to invite you into safe spaces where you can feel the freedom to be weak and still experience the grace of Jesus. Don Corleone <coughs> told, <laughs> excuse me, told his boy, Sonny, he says, don't let anybody ever know what you're thinking. It's weakness. Maybe you were told that growing up. Maybe you were told something like, you know, don't let anybody ever see you struggle because people are going to hurt you and they're going to reject you. Well, if that's the case, then who, who's safe? Who can you trust? We need each other. The Lord has put us in each other's lives to look more like him. We participate in that. So that's the first challenge. Here's the second challenge. It's the challenge just as the church in general. Here in Acts 4, this is the beginning of the persecution of the church, and it's not getting any easier, is it? It's not. The fact that we don't face more persecution as the church in this country is simply the mercy of God. It's not because this country was founded on such solid uh, Christian principles. Right, a lot of our founding fathers just want to pursue more autonomy. John Adams himself said the government of the U.S. is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. The reason that Christians in the church in places like China and elsewhere across the world face such harsh persecution is not because of a lack of a democratic system of government. It's because we as human beings, at our core, by nature, are rebels against God. And we crave power and control and autonomy, and we will squash anybody that gets in the way. When many of these people in Acts, when they came to faith in Jesus, they were excited about the gospel. They were what we call, they were set on fire for Jesus, right? But it wouldn't be long where also many of them would soon literally be set on fire for Jesus. Why? Because the gospel is a threat to established power structures. And we have to know that. Okay, but here are two encouragements. First, persecution and oppression is always the result of the fear of losing power. It's always a result of the fear of losing power. These authorities in Acts are afraid that the resurrection is true. They're afraid that Jesus really rose from the dead and that he is really sovereign and that he's come to change how the world operates. They're afraid of that and what that means for them. But in our context, in our world, those who oppress others in, um, in other countries, in our country, in, in our city, 
they either know or they're at least afraid that the power that they wield is going to come to an end and they're holding on for whatever they can for as long as they can. They have a fear of losing it. And that should be encouraging to us. Why? Because we know that there is coming a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's true whether you're his friend or whether you are his enemy. Every knee will bow. Here's the the second encouragement. The gospel has always and will always change people and change the world. Martin Luther King Jr., he said this in his uh, letters from the Birmingham jail. He said, the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. The gospel can change people. In verses 20 and 21, you see that as the disciples are threatened, they keep going on proclaiming the gospel because they said, we have to speak about what we know and about what we have seen. We have seen the gospel transform lives. In our lives, we've seen someone who has never been able to walk to stand up and stand before you right now and to skip and to dance around. We have to speak about what we know. And then how do the people respond in the face of the oppression that is before them? They go out fearlessly praising God for what he's done. There is this theme in the book of Acts that keeps coming up time and time again. I think there's seven or eight different passages. And and one of them is in our text in verse 4. It says that here in the face of the persecution that Peter and John, the rest of the disciples, are experiencing... The number of the men came to about 5,000. In each of these summary passages in the book of Acts, they say that here's the persecution that the church faced, and then the church grew. Here's who got thrown in jail. Here's who got stoned, and the church grew, and the church grew, and the church grew. The very last word in the book of Acts is the word unhindered in the Greek. It says that the gospel went forth into the world without hindrance. How? Because nothing can stop the power of Jesus. Nothing. Okay, two opportunities and then we're done. First, we have an opportunity to to just love people well. To love people. The, The character that we're to embody as followers of Jesus, it doesn't just come by exercising some sort of moral body. But it comes by also giving away ourselves to other people. That when we start to form intimate relationships that encourage us to live out of the power of Jesus together, it helps us not uh, pursue this trek uh, up this mountain of autonomy into the death zone. To love people. Here's the second opportunity. We have an opportunity just to pray for people. I know there's a lot of great things that we can pray about, and we do pray about every single Sunday and then every day throughout our week. There's a lot of very specific things, um, big rock items, and then small things as well. But let me just challenge us with this. What if our only prayer that we prayed was, Lord, would you transform my heart and my life, and would you transform the hearts and lives of others in this city by the power of Jesus? What if we just prayed that? Do you think that God would listen to you? This is a Lord 
who, who brings light where there was darkness. He brings life where there was death. He brings healing where there was lameness. Jesus in the, is in the business of making all things new. Is God going to listen to that prayer? Yes, he is. He will honor it. We may have great sin, but we have a greater Savior with great power, and he will continue to do great things for us because his steadfast love endures forever. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord, we, we thank you that, that your power cannot be matched. Uh, we are thankful that you do not um, let your power be threatened. You do not share it. Uh, and yet it is through that power that our lives have been changed and we see transformation in our lives and those that we love, and those even that we um, have hated, those that we thought are so far from you they could never um, come to faith in Jesus. And yet, Lord, it's the power of the gospel. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we live in a day, in a world um, where so many are directly opposed to you and your kingdom, and your design for, for us and our lives, uh, that we would see the gospel permeate um, our, our spheres of influence in this community, in this city, uh, as we still experience um, uh, deep divides in this city, uh, historical divides, uh, especially of racism. Lord, only the gospel can transform uh, those lives, only the gospel, only the power of Jesus can break down those walls, break down those barriers. Uh, Lord, maybe we be for one another as we lean into you and live out of the power of Jesus that has brought us from death to life. We pray this all for the glory of Jesus. Amen.